Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The great essayist, novelist, and journalist Joan Didion died on December 23, 2021, at the age of 87 a chronicler of Hollywood, of social mores, of political rhetoric, and of the American zeitgeist. She was the author of several novels, including Play It As It Lays and The Last Thing He Wanted, the brilliant book-length essay on grief, The Year of Magical Thinking, which also became a play, and several collections of essays, including Slouching Toward Bethlehem. Her screenplays include The Panic in Needle Park, True Confessions, and the Barbara Streisand Chris Christopherson, A Star is Born. I had a chance to interview Joan Didion while she was on tour for her collection of essays, Where I Was From. Sadly, due to technical difficulties, only the first part of the interview was recorded before both the computer and backup failed. The interview was recorded on October 21, 2003, in the KPFA studios. Joan Didion. What's the origin of this? And I know some of the essays were published before, and now you collected, reworked the whole thing. The first few pages about my family, the first page and a half probably, was in a column I wrote about for Esquire in the 70s, and then that went in an entirely different direction. That was just there. In 1992 or three, I did a piece in Lakewood, California, which is part of Los Angeles County. You remember there's this group called the Spur Posse? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were all over 24-7 radio, television. Lakewood was always described as the suburb of Los Angeles. I had no, I lived in Los Angeles for 24 years. I had no, not a clue where it was. So I got out the Thomas Map book, and lo and behold, I just was stunned. I could hardly believe my luck. Lo and behold, Lakewood had a Douglas plant. It was one of those towns off the San Diego freeway that you have no way of knowing it. I wanted to do a peace in one of those towns my entire adult life in Los Angeles. I never had a story that would take me into it. What I saw in the Thomas book was here was a town, like with one regional shopping center and one Douglas plant. I wrote about 18,000 words, in fact. It raised more questions than I could ever begin to answer. And so basically then I began rereading a lot of stuff. It raised more questions about California and the whole idea of why California was the way it was. As I read the book, I was trying to link those two elements, because we know there are other elements of California, which you've certainly written about, the Bay Area as the center for the beats, the hippies, and eventually the gays, Los Angeles as movie capital, you know, all of that. And here we have juxtaposed the train coming west, Mm -hmm. and you talk about the train. And then on the other hand, we have the result of the train, which is... Lakewood. Lakewood is the answer to Henry George's question, what will the railroad bring us? Lakewood is what the railroad brought us. And by the railroad, we're talking metaphorically, 
you say the train is the image of manifest destiny. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit more about this concept of manifest destiny because I think it plays a role certainly in the development of California. It may also be playing a role right now in our foreign policy. Oh, I think it is, yeah. Manifest destiny in the United States was the idea that we God had given us the task of settling the entire nation. And, of course, now we're seeing that God has given us the task of remaking the Middle East. And it's talked about with much the same frankness. I just finished a piece for the New York Review about the Bush administration's relationship to the Christian right. And a lot of it's opportunistic, a lot of that relationship. But all the language comes out of that tradition. And it's been a long time before we had people talking, frankly, about God having given us a mission. I'm going to want to be writing something down about our extension of, of manifest destiny into the rest of the world. California, the promised land, originally New York, the promised land, and I guess to that degree, the boat was the train when they mm -hmm. came over. For many years, up through the Reagan era, the country looked to California. It seems to me that since then, the focus has shifted to Texas. Right after the Kennedy assassination, it kind of came to my attention that a lot of what was really more significant than California, a lot more of the stuff was going on along the Texas Gulf Coast and, right. the, and the Louisiana Gulf Coast and the Florida coast right around to Miami. That kind of interface with Latin and, and Central and, and South America was, was changing America in more profound ways than, than, than anything that was coming out of California. George W. Bush and his father seemed to me so accidentally part of it. I mean, particularly the son, his Texasness seems more an affectation. A great deal of the book deals with Frank Norris's book, The Octopus. How did you stumble upon that? All these questions started coming to my mind after I did the Lakewood piece. And so I started rereading a lot of stuff that I had, a lot of California stuff that, that I had read before, but maybe there was a new way of looking at it where I hadn't gotten it before. And basically, I just started reading stuff I had around the house. And the octopus was lying, you know, was there on the shelf. And I was stunned by how, how much more ambiguous it was than I had thought it was. What's strange as you talk about it in the book and then talk about your own life is it's almost a microcosm of your own family. The striking thing about it to me was that when I had first read it, when I was still living in Sacramento, I had read it and I had thought it had nothing to do with Sacramento. It had nothing, it, it had nothing to do with anything I knew about, any California I knew about, because it was from a different valley, the San Joaquin. That was how separated we were. It's striking that there's more emphasis in dealing with California here and discussing fiction rather than nonfiction and, non and history. Moon, yeah. On some level, then, is, is fiction more truthful than nonfiction? The books I was dealing with had in many ways formed California's idea of itself. Certainly, The Octopus and Jack London. Somebody I should have read and didn't was Gertrude Atherton. I mean, I meant to go back and reread her, but I didn't because I think she had a specific role there, too. At one point, you write about your book, Joan Dinian, you write, this is a book about an historical nihilism that determined my life as surely as it determined their lives and where that nihilism came from. When you talk about historical nihilism, can you be more specific? What exactly are you talking about? I'm talking about a, a sense that nothing matters or that nothing has any value. I'm talking about a sense of nothingness. 
if Lakewood is meaningless, if the trip is meaningless, then Manifest Destiny is not merely, let's say, a bad political plan, but itself is a lie. It is a lie, which enriches a few people along the way, but does not make a society. So what is this impulse toward it? Where is it coming from? What is driving the original Manifest Destiny or the Manifest Destiny that we're seeing right now? Most things in politics, I tend to think, come from an overwhelming need to stay in office, to kind of perpetuate the machine. There are a lot of ideologues involved in this administration. But at some point, if in fact it becomes clear that America wants out of this mission to remake the Middle East, which I suspect is not long from now, I think we'll see a pullback there. <laughs> what you're suggesting is that at a certain point, the Bush folks would throw out the baggage of the neocons in order to stay in power. I, I am suggesting that. I mean, don't you think they would? From my perspective, had the Bush administration been truly interested in just maintaining power, they wouldn't have embarked on the Iraq adventure began in some respects before W was elected. We know that, yeah, right? But beyond that, the actions of the Bush administration, if you recall, when he was put in power, when he became president, a lot of people in the media were saying, this guy's got to govern from the center because that would be the only way to maintain his power. Mm -hmm. From day one, he governed from the extreme right. You're he right. didn't mm -hmm. care. Right. Maybe he knew he had 9-11 in the hole. Let's assume that it just mm. happened and it was serendipitous. Mm. He immediately went back to Iraq. You know what he said that, that day or that night when he met with his national security advisor when he got back to the White House and met with them? He said this is a great opportunity. Let me ask you then, tying current events to your book, about the recall that happened in California. Is this and the election of an action star from Austria who gave no idea of who he was or what he was planning to do or anything, and he got elected by a fairly overwhelming majority. Is that an, another example of the nihilism of California? Yeah, I think it is. The carelessness, the willingness to express anger or, or dissatisfaction with no regard for consequences or for other people, it was a pretty California deal, I think. We saw the same thing in Proposition 13, you know, we've seen it periodically. Joan Didion, in your work, you've written both fiction and nonfiction. Which is easier for you? Which is more fun? Which do you think says more? How do you view them? Writing a novel is not more fun because you wake up every morning and you have to make it up and you think, why do this? Who wants it? It's quite a frightening thing to live through and you feel depressed the whole time you're doing it. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big thing to undertake. Actually, my last novel had such a dense plot that I had to write it in about four, four or five months. So it was okay. You know, I mean, I, I could get out from under this in four or five months. Nonfiction is, it's a different rhythm, but it's more gratifying to get up in the morning because you're actually, you've got all these notes. <laughs> <laughs> I would guess it's also a little more direct in how you get your points across if you choose it to oh, be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're basically in a novel, you're just writing down your dreams. To that degree, then, it sounds like when you are working on a novel, like The Last Thing He Wanted, it's almost um, almost like a, a, a channeling experience if it's going to come through. It's just coming through. It's just coming through. 
I started it, I think, on August 31st, and I finished it the day after Christmas. The only writer I've spoken with who has, I've spoken with a few writers with similar uh, feelings about writing, but the one who sticks out in my mind who does that, and that's how she works, is Joyce Carol Joyce Oates. Carol Oates, she actually, I mean, she is a pure receiver. She simply, if you tell her a story about something you've read in the paper, you can see her, you, you can practically see her receiving it, processing it, and you know that it will be, that she will have used it without ever, without, without ever giving it a thought within days. <laughs> <laughs> Several years ago, you uh, wrote a book called Slouching Toward Bethlehem. There was an essay in it about a search for a man named Chester Anderson in San Francisco. Insofar as I know, you never did meet. I never did meet. No. I knew him. You did? He was a science fiction writer. Really? And this show started as a science fiction show. My then co-host was a big fan of his book, The Butterfly Kid, and we tracked him down to Monte Rio, California. It was the second interview I was part of. We interviewed him and a writer named uh, Paul Williams. One of Chester's greatest regrets was not having to that point met Joan Didion, who'd written about it. <laughs> God knows it was one of mine. I mean, I was, now, wasn't Rio a town where, next to the Bohemian Grove? Chester Anderson wound up living in, on a, in, yeah. <laughs> inches from, from Bohemian Grove. You talk a little about Bohemian Grove and, and where I was from. Did that intrigue you? I mean, would, would you have wanted to write more about it? No, I think I pretty much wrote myself out on that. William Domhoff did an interesting book about Bohemian Grove. It was called, I think it was called Bohemian Grove and Other Ruling, Ruling Class Retreats. Joan Didion, in your previous book, Political Fictions, you talk about the political class. Do you think things are worse now than they were when you wrote the book or the same, or is the political class just something that drifts through history, people come into it, lose touch and eventually fade out of it? No, I think we have never seen a political class as large and as, as removed as we have now. And the reason it's so large is because the media has joined it, or the media has joined it to the extent that anybody who writes about or is interested in politics kind of gravitates into it because that's where the access is. Is what they're working on what you would call political pornography? Yes. The political class also, I don't think, has ever been as removed from the rest of the country. The Washington Post has been fantastic on the Iraq War, actually, because it's, because it's, it's a Washington story that, that they've been very good on, I mean, much better than other papers, on stuff coming out of the Pentagon, stuff leaked out of CIA. But because they're in Washington, I, I don't think they have the sense that you can get in the rest of the country of a dissatisfaction with the war. That doesn't strike me as much different than the harping on the Clinton sexual peccadillo when the rest of the country was more concerned with, with what was happening what in was the rest happening. of the country. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it is pretty much the same. Molly Ivins told me that one of the problems is when you're a pundit of any kind and you wind up in Washington, in the Beltway, you enter a bubble. And within days, you're part of that bubble. If you want to get your phone calls returned, you, you have to be in that bubble. I'm not invited into the bubble. I went to Washington once. I spent a week there, two weeks there, uh, in the White House press room. And I was trying to write a piece, mid-'80s. I could never get one soul to return a phone call. And it was explained to me by somebody who was then in the administration that no one was ever going to return my phone calls because I, I had too diffuse an agenda. 
I mean, in other words, they didn't know exactly what I was going to write. So that was that. So I went home. <laughs> in, in other words, you were a wild card and yeah. they don't like wild no. cards. To that degree, it, it seems that the idea of, you know, Hollywood and Washington and politics start converging. You know, Schwarzenegger has the same handlers to deal with politics that he did with films. And it's understandable if you're a film star and you want your privacy. But in politics, it's supposed to be about information. Information. It's supposed to be about contact with the voter. Yeah. Right. I don't know how he's going to handle that. But I think the fact that he was able to handle to do that during the campaign and even during the transition, he's not talking about the transition. Nobody's giving interviews on how this is all going to happen. There's one other thing that I discovered, which is uh, I found out that he has a website listing all of the policies. And one of them was the reintroduction of deregulation of, of energy. Yes. I just read that someplace, that, which was astonishing to me. But it was there all along. Yeah. It came up the day after the election and then disappeared back into the void because the media didn't push it. You worked in Hollywood. You have worked in Hollywood over time. Is there also a bubble in Hollywood? Oh, yeah, very much so. If you see Hollywood people outside places where they're comfortable, even people you know very well will never meet your eye because they're in the bubble. I mean, I remember seeing some, some people I knew quite well at the Republican convention in New Orleans outside at the Superdome in 1988. And it was as if we didn't know each other because they were in the bubble. It's to protect, I mean, it grows up in Hollywood to protect them from being approached at all, being mobbed, basically. You said that you go to Washington and nobody returns your phone call because you're a wild card. But if Joan Didion is supposed to be writing a piece, say, for Atlantic Monthly or wherever, and calls up a movie star, they will get back to you, won't they? Yes, they will. That's a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that is? Well, they might not get back to me. They might not give me act. I mean, somebody would call me back, right? But what what would happen then, whether I would get access to the to the star or not, would depend on whether or not they wanted the piece that I was going to write. I mean, I would not be given access for an undefined piece. So it would be the same thing? It would be the same thing, yeah. You as a journalist, how do you get around that when you can? Everybody gets around it by not entering the bubble. I mean, there's a bubble right now. Journalists have told me who've been in Baghdad during the, you know, the quote-unquote post-hostilities there is a bubble around the American effort. In uh, they have the only cell phones that work. Uh, they 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 get their clothes cleaned in in Kuwait. They truly don't participate in you know they they, they don't see a lot of what they're in a bubble. But you, if you don't you don't enter the bubble. You don't. I mean you don't have to enter the bubble. I mean you don't you don't have to. As a reporter, unless you're an embed, <laughs> right? Yeah, you don't uh, you don't have to to travel with the. But it's set up in such a way that the bubble becomes almost a luxury, a limousine, not just a bubble. Yeah. Whereas otherwise, you're sitting in a in a jeep oh, open absolutely. to the rain. Absolutely, with no and particularly in Iraq, it's meaningful because there's so many ambushes and there's so many dangerous drives to, that you have might have to make like to get to the airport that it would be very useful to go in and to go in, a, in the embassy bubble 
Joan Denine, you've written for Hollywood, and when I interviewed your husband, John Gregory Dunn, told a little bit about the story of the movie Up Close and Personal, uh, which began as the story of Jessica Savage and somehow turned into a romance between Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert Redford. Is that one of the worst Hollywood stories you have? No, it's a fairly typical one. I mean, the the untypical one, I mean, I, I could name on, on the fingers of one hand, uh, untypical experiences were movies like True Confessions, which was a really easy, wonderful thing to work on and came out to be a really good movie. This is so much the exception that, I mean, part of it is that movies cost so much money now. If you're going to have two-character movie, not historical, which always costs more, not no cast of thousands, a two-character romantic comedy is going to now cost you $60 million. Well, if you're going to put that kind of money in, then you're going to second-guess it at every step. Basically, that's what went on with Up Close and Personal. Joan Didion, I'm going to ask you about certain things. I'm curious about your opinion of, of them, number one, and number two, whether th these are things that you intend in the future to write on. One is the level of corruption that we're viewing now the breach between the kitchen and the bathroom, in, in this case, the White House and the corporate world. I would like to find a way to write about that. I, I mean, yes, I would like to write about that. I think it's particularly clear. I mean, it's very much on our minds right now. I looked on that website that was set up by the people who used to be in the administration to basically give away the Iraq contracts. That was staggering. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, another area would be the transformation of gossip into news. That the whole of 24-7 programming has elevated gossip and elevated confrontation, I mean, kind of rhetorical confrontation. Another would be the screaming. Yeah, the screaming. When all you were doing is screaming. I mean, I was, I was because I was in a hotel room, I was watching um, MSNBC the other day. We had returned to these blondes screaming at each other. You know, this was over the Kobe Bryant case, but right. uh, there was a former federal prosecutor, there was a, there was a defense attorney, right? And, the, the, and they were screaming at each other. The one that got me was on, I think it was CNBC, and they were trying to find two people to argue the pros and cons of Rush Limbaugh's statement about <laughs> black players. <laughs> so on the one hand, they wanted black people, right? Yeah. But what black person? sane black person would argue in favor of Rush Limbaugh. Right. Well, they finally found one. So what they had was the head of the NAACP on the one side, and on the other side, some rabid, screaming right-winger who was part of an organization that no one in the universe had heard of. It's amazing. Do you think that journalism, I'm talking serious journalism, has gone downhill or is serious journalism today, when we're talking serious, as good if not better than we've seen in the past? I think it is. Absolutely, I think it is. But, but I don't think there's so much other bad stuff out around and sometimes in the same venues. But I mean, th there's a lot of really good journalism. If someone were serious about finding good journalism, where do you look? Well, uh, the, the, the newspapers I read are... are the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the, the Washington Post. I mean, 
then, then of course, I also read the tabloids. <laughs> they also, actually, you can get a lot of stuff. Financial Times has some good pieces. The uh, BBC has some good pieces on the net. Um, also, you can, you can get a lot of European stuff off the net, which, which is very, very useful in terms of giving a broad sense of, of what, how the rest of the world feels, which is hard to grasp here. What is Joan Didion reading right now? I just read Susanna Moore's new novel called One Last Look, which is about, it, it is in the form of a memoir or a, a diary kept by, in the 19th century, by a, a woman who accompanies her brother, who, who has been appointed governor general of India, and she goes to India with him. But essentially, it's about a, someone from England confronting the colonial world and, in a sense, becoming Indian. You've been listening to an interview with essayist, novelist, and screenwriter Joan Didion, who died on December 23, 2021, at the age of 87. The interview was recorded in the KPFA studios on October 21, 2003, while she was on tour for her collection of essays, Where I Was From. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.